0: Welcome to Lunch and Unlearn. In honor of National Suicide Prevention Month, in this episode, Brie and I discuss suicide and its impact across race, gender, sexual orientation, and socioeconomic status. We will also share with you our featured follow, a resource we recommend sharing with your loved ones. And finally, we will leave you with some personal reflections to consider in the week ahead. Let's grab some lunch and get ready to unlearn together.
1: In the midst of a pandemic, a black revolution and a white awakening are happening. Diversity, equity, and inclusion educators, Brianna Clover and Dr. Jessica Petty create brave spaces for candid conversations on race equity, focusing specifically on its intersection with ableism, sexism, sexual orientation, and gender identity, all from the unique perspective of a black woman and a white woman.
0: I'm Dr. Jessica Petty. And I'm Brianna Clover and I want to support National Suicide Prevention Month, so in today's episode, we discuss suicide and its impact across race, gender, sexual orientation, and socioeconomic status.
1: I'm glad we are talking about this today. In the U.S., suicide is the 10th leading cause of death, and for many of the people we support in our work, it is even higher than that.
0: And a major indicator and risk factor for suicide relates directly to our mental health. So as we all navigate a global pandemic, I know that the stress and burden does not get distributed equally. When I think about the collective trauma we are all experiencing in the midst of this pandemic, I immediately think about Black people and all that they have experienced and the similar level of trauma prior to this. And the pandemic has only exacerbated that, and we see the intersection of race And mental health and the tragic incident currently in the news coverage of Daniel Prude's death earlier this year in Rochester, New York.
1: You're right. Even prior to this pandemic, being Black in America does have a level of burden that often goes unnoticed and dismissed. According to a 2018 survey by the Federal Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, 16% of African-American adults reported having a mental illness in the past year, and 22.4% of that group reported a serious mental illness. And when we look at the nearly 5 million African-Americans with a mental illness, close to 70% of them haven't received treatment according to that same administration. What intrigues me and deserves more attention, I think, is the intergenerational impact of the trauma of chattel slavery. I've been doing some research on a theory that was developed by Dr. DeGruy after over 12 years of quantitative and qualitative research. And this theory is called post-traumatic slave syndrome, and it addresses the residual impacts of generations of chattel slavery. It explains the many adaptive survival behavior in African-American communities throughout the U.S. and the diaspora. So, what I mean when I say diaspora is those descendants of slaves who were displaced involuntarily over time due to the transatlantic slave trade. This is a condition that exists as a consequence of multi generational oppression of Africans and their descendants, resulting from centuries of chattel slavery. And Dr. Grew refers to something called MAP. It's an acronym. M stands for multi generational trauma together with continued oppression. A stands for the absence of opportunity to heal or access the benefits available in society, in the society, which leads to P, post-traumatic slave syndrome.
0: When we look at mental health among the Black community, I see multiple things at play here. Uh, As you mentioned, Bree, generational trauma is a big impact. We also see entrenched beliefs among the Black community that... Basically, they feel or they can feel as free descendants of formerly enslaved people who had survived, you know, racist brutality and abuse. Perhaps their feelings of sadness or the need to ask for help could be viewed as a sign of weakness. This is also further validated by, you know, the racist ideas that say slavery is well behind us. And why can't black people just get over it?
1: Yes. And I think this negative stigma surrounding mental health leads to many in the Black community resorting to self-medication, such as drugs and alcohol. And data does show a steep price paid for that belief. Suicide was the third leading cause of death among Black males ages 1 to 19 in 2017. And the fourth leading cause of death among Black males ages 20 to 44, according to the CDC. And systemic barriers to treatment, including lower rates of health
0: insurance among the Black community, a shortage of Black mental health practitioners, and a lack of cultural competence among existing mental health practitioners. And there's just a lot of bias in those systems. It's historical. It has led to a reluctance for Black people to want to engage in the system. If somebody is complaining of a particular symptom they're likely to be misdiagnosed. They might be prescribed a medication that's probably not best for them. In 2016, a study was published that indicated when callers were seeking treatment, they were far more likely to be granted an appointment if they were white and middle class instead of black and middle class. And another recent study found that African-Americans are disproportionately misdiagnosed with schizophrenia, a disorder treated with antipsychotic drugs and potentially hospitalization. But a separate paper published in the Journal of Psychiatric Services suggests that implicit bias in the mental health field has a lot to do with this. And as an example, consider a black man who has grown up in a society where men and boys of color are disproportionately targeted by law enforcement. And perhaps his vigilance in his everyday life might be perceived as a natural consequence of racial profiling by one provider, but by another provider, that same behavior might be interpreted as paranoia related to schizophrenia.
1: The statistics and that reality is heartbreaking. We see suicides among Black people have risen in recent years, and this is a fact punctuated by four deaths by hanging within a three-week period in late May and June of this year within days of George Floyd's lynching. One happened in New York, another two occurred in California, some 50 miles apart, and a fourth took place in the Houston area. So
0: as we think about mental health and its relationship with suicide, the most recent statistics that I found were from late June, and it was a survey conducted by the CDC. They found in the general population that 40% of adults are struggling with their mental health and substance abuse. And it's often related to financial concerns and, of course, the added worry for loved ones impacted by COVID-19.
1: And when we drill into that data further, 22% of essential workers who responded to the survey said that they have considered suicide. 22%. That's staggering. I'd love to take a deeper look at essential
0: workers. An Associated Press survey of the 100 largest cities in the U.S. found that essential workers are more likely to be women people of color and or a person of immigrant status.
1: They are also more likely to live below the poverty line, have children at home, and live with other frontline workers. So let's let's talk specifics. Um, let's let's investigate a few
0: of those those jobs. So when we think about warehouse workers, 60% are people of color, but when we drill down into specific cities, say like Newark, New Jersey, People of color represent 95% of their warehouse workers. And another job that is critical to the operation of most businesses is the janitor. So 40% are foreign born, 74% are people of color, 30% of them lack health insurance, and a quarter of them live below the poverty line. And again, when you drill down into specific cities and you look at a place like Baltimore, Maryland, 75% of their janitors are from the black community.
1: And when we look at essential healthcare workers, 75% of them are female. And specifically for healthcare workers, the
0: impact of compassion fatigue can also add more mental health stress. I I first learned about compassion fatigue when I worked in the animal health industry and had regular contact with veterinarians. In a January 2019 CDC study published in the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association, U.S. veterinary data was collected from 1979 through 2015, and the information found a suicide rate among veterinarians that was significantly higher than the general U.S. population. Additionally, with the increase in female veterinarians across the country, the study also showed that these female veterinarians were almost three and a half times as likely as the general US population to take their own lives. And because being a veterinarian is not just about cute puppies and kittens, it is also so often about illness or injury and very difficult end of life decisions. This is hard on pet owners as well. And they sometimes take out their feelings of hurt, grief, even guilt on the veterinarian. So the impact over time results in compassion fatigue. And it's broadly defined as a concept that includes emotional, physical, and spiritual distress in those providing care to another. And that can be caregiving for people or animals And it's when these caregivers are experiencing significant emotional or physical pain and suffering.
1: I have a new appreciation for veterinarians uh, just thinking through, I, I had, to be honest, hadn't heard of compassion fatigue before, but I just recently had an experience with my family dog where we had to put her down and just the care that we experienced that we were given by the vet was just so helpful and it just gave me a new appreciation for the aftercare that they have to do and the care for not only the pets, but for those owners. So I appreciated learning about that. I think we shared a lot of statistics today. And just with all of that information, I think it's so important for us to understand how we support the mental health of our essential workers who are predominantly women, people of color, and people of immigrant status. So that 22% that we mentioned earlier who said that they were considering suicide in late June don't act on that thought. And although the stress of
0: COVID-19 has increased the risk factors related to suicide, For many groups, the risk were already so incredibly high compared to the general population.
1: Jess, as you said that, I immediately thought of the LGBTQ community and the youth especially. When we think about our youth, adolescence is a time of sexual and social development, when many young people may begin to realize or express attraction to people of the same sex or identify with a gender other than their sex assigned at birth. And while the risk of mental health disorders, suicide, substance misuse, and other health problems spikes during adolescence, this risk can be even more pronounced for sexual minority youth. And this has been researched over many years. One study, for example, looked at suicide rates among teens between 2009 and 2017, and it found that young people who didn't identify as heterosexual were more than three times as likely as those who did to attempt suicide. And a second study looked at this same connection from 1995 to 2017 and found suicidal thoughts, plans, and attempts were all more common among sexual minority youth. There's a great deal of evidence linking stigma against sexual minority youth to suicide attempts. And this stigma can be found in the form of family rejection, peer bullying, and higher level state policies. Those are all linked to increased suicide amongst sexual minority youth. And I just, I think that's heartbreaking. And
0: as a parent of an LGBTQ young adult, I also know that parental support and access to mental health professionals when and if needed is vital to counteracting these increased risks. It's also another reason that our work fuels me. If we lived in a world where people could be seen and loved for their full identity Perhaps we could reduce the shame and fear that LGBTQ youth are saddled with today.
1: I know, Jess. And especially now that I'm a mother myself, whenever I think of young people feeling isolated and alone and unable to stand in their power, their own power, it just breaks my heart. As parents, I just want to wrap my arms around all of our children, the most vulnerable. And I believe, I truly believe it's our job to protect them. So, Bree, your reflections on
0: isolation remind me of another group with a higher risk of suicide, and that is men. And when we think about society and culture, if
1: I say picture a group of close friends, Brie, do you see a group of men or women? I definitely imagine a group of women. And I think, of course, that's based on my personal experience, but also when I remember the many TV shows or I think about the many TV shows and movies that I watch, it's much easier for me to think about groups of girlfriends. So since you and I are both raising boys and have incredible men in our lives, I'd like to
0: share something that was impactful to me from a book that I read called The Unmade Bed by Stephen March. So March writes, the transition from boyhood to manhood is a journey into isolation. Becoming a man means leaving behind your family and your friends, striking out on your own, and therefore growing up means shedding connections. Male suicide rates correlate precisely to the loss of their friendships. At age nine, suicide rates are the same for girls and boys. Between 10 and 14, boys are twice as likely to kill themselves. Between 15 and 19, they're four times more likely. From 20 to 24, five times more likely. And masculine maturity is inherently a lonely thing to process. That's why maturity and despair go together for men. The splendid isolation of masculinity has emerged from so much iconography, the cowboy, the astronaut, the gangster, that almost every hero in the past 50 years has been a figure of loneliness And current pop culture is even more extreme. It doesn't merely celebrate the lonely men. It despises men in groups. And in periods of vulnerability, the male suicide rate spikes. Unemployed men kill themselves twice as often as employed men. And by the way, there's no difference in the rate of employment and unemployment and suicide for women. And after a divorce, a man is 10 times as likely to commit suicide as a woman. And men over 85 kill themselves 13 times more often than women over age 85. And I think it's just so important to to address this because this is where we see, we talk about gender norms and the impact on women, but the impact of gender norms on men is also detrimental. And I know for myself, raising a son, making sure that he has friendships and strong connections is so important to me. And I recognize now how impactful that is to his mental health.
1: Some of those statistics you shared are humbling. And to be honest, now that I'm raising a son, horrifying. So I think you made a really good point and something that I'm going to be more cognizant of. And just when I think back of everything that we've shared today during this episode, I just think... It's just a really good reminder, and hopefully for our listeners as well, about the importance of protecting and supporting the mental health of essential workers, especially now in the midst of COVID, advocating for the LGBTQ community and standing with them to combat hate, and reminding the boys and men in our lives that taking time to cultivate friendships is not feminine. It is a healthy part of human connection. I think when we think about isolation and its impact, on us as individuals, but also as a society. It's important for us, I think, to remember how it often creates divides. And when we think of this time of COVID, political rivalry, and an uprising against injustice, we must recognize the isolated and and build bridges. And also recognize if we personally are feeling isolated, not to be afraid to ask for help. So well said, Bree. Thank you for sharing this brave space with me today. If you or a loved one are experiencing thoughts of suicide, we wanted to share with you the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. The number is 1-800-273-8255. They provide 24 seven free and confidential support for people in distress, prevention, and crisis resources for you or for your loved ones, as well as best practices for professionals. We are learning so much from others that in each episode, we want to feature a thought leader or a resource that is impactful for us. This episode's featured follow is Not One More Vet, an organization focused on well being, mental health, and crisis intervention in the veterinarian community. The 2020 plan was to coordinate with Not One More Vet Executive Board to make this race a national event. However, with COVID 19, they decided to create a virtual event. And if you are interested in joining, you can register as an individual or be part of a team. You can set your mileage and fundraising goal that you hope to achieve by November 10th, 2020. The money raised during this campaign will go toward their programs. And that includes a large peer support network that seeks to reduce isolation, provide personal support from caring and understanding peers, and allow for crisis intervention when needed, specifically focused on veterinarians.
0: After listening to this episode, whether on your own or with your work teams, family, or friends, we'd like to leave you with a challenge. Who in your life may be suffering from isolation? And what can you do to connect with them?
1: As we embark on this journey of unlearning, we are so thankful that you're here. We are excited to continue unpacking this conversation around race equity and intersectionality together. Stay connected with us. Visit our website at lunchandunlearn.com and
0: subscribe to our newsletter. You can also follow us on Instagram at Lunch and Unlearn and
1: Facebook at Lunch and Unlearn. We hope you'll grab lunch with us again and join us for more Brave Conversations next time.